You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and Andrew Kingsley is with me today as we finish the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, sorry. Ezekiel. Um, Who knows? Somebody's probably called it Ezekiel. 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 Yeah. Okay. So, um... Should we, we start this start back over? over? <laughs> no, we're good. Let's keep it's going. too late. I don't think I can work up the energy. Everybody too. loves your Ezekiel joke. We'll probably get lots of texts. Have I done that it. one already? I don't know. I've been doing it, haven't I? I don't know. I don't think I've heard it yet. Well, we're finishing it up. So right. if I hadn't done it, this was my last opportunity. This if I have been doing time. it, Andrew, the good news is you don't have to hear me make that same joke again. Yeah, much better the last episode than the first one. Okay. I think. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we're going to, we're not really stopping at the end of the book. There are several chapters after the ones we're covering today. But thematically, I think what we're ending on today says it all to kind of put a conclusion onto our study of Ezekiel and also to kind of give the thematic climax of the book, although it's not necessarily the last chapter. Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. Uh, Chapter 37's got what I think to be the most vivid picture in the book of Ezekiel, and there are a lot of pictures um, for us to look at in terms of visions. This is the most graphic or vivid one that we'll come across. I'm just going to turn it over to you, uh, Andrew, to take us through the reading of these two chapters, one and a half chapters. I'm glad you brought up that this is not the end of the book, but it does sort of introduce what is going to come at the end of the book, starting in chapter 40 and going all the way to the end, chapter 48, Ezekiel's going to have his final vision that's in the book, uh, and it's really the same vision that we saw in the first chapter, or the second chapter rather, where uh, Ezekiel has this vision of the cherubim and the wheels and the presence of God. It leaves. That's chapter Jerusalem. one, I think. Yeah, chapter one and two. And then it comes back um, in chapter 40 that glory of the Lord is going to come back to uh-huh. Jerusalem and there's going to be a new temple. And the final nine chapters of the book really deals with how big the city's going to be, what the new temple's going to look like, what's going to be in the new temple, a lot of that kind of stuff. Right, um, because just to remind our listeners, the setting is captives from Judah in Babylon, and they have received the promise through Jeremiah and others that the captivity will not last forever. Uh, it's not indefinite. They will be released. Jeremiah says it's going to be a 70-year captivity. Ezekiel is aware of this as well, and so he's preparing them for that return. The concept of a remnant is there, where a small portion of what began will return. Mm -hmm. Of course, the temple will be gone, so that's why they're going to have to reconstruct a temple. It was The first one had been destroyed um, by Babylon. Yeah, so we're running up pretty, pretty close to the time of Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, we're getting pretty close to that. We're not there yet, but Jerusalem's already been destroyed. Um, so so the stage is set for later on, and that's the vision that Ezekiel is having. But today we're going to focus in on chapter 36 and 37, where 
the prophecies that we've been reading against Jerusalem and against all these other nations are now coming to a head. And God explains what's going to happen here in the end for his people. So beginning in the start of chapter 36, there's this really neat prophecy to the mountains of Israel. Starting in verse 36, or excuse me, chapter 1. Let's try this again. (laughs) So you said I'm here with you uh, co-hosting today. I'm mostly here. Mostly Uh, here. Andrew has a six-month-old, right? Yes. Is that how old she is? Yeah, so she's six I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. you'll give him a break. But this is uh, definitely not back. the worst mistake I've made today with just trying to say very easy, <laughs> common words. Might need to go get checked out. So, uh, how about this? Back this it up is for us here, Andrew. Chapter 36, verse 1. Okay. Oh, no. Now I got to read it. So, you remember <laughs> how to read. We'll see. And you, son of man, remember Ezekiel's been called the son of man, I think it's 93 times in this book. Mm-hmm. Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord your God, because the enemy said of you, Aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, precisely because you made desolate and crushed you from all, they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides so that you may become the possession of the rest of the nations and you become the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves of a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make it pasture lands a prey. And so remember, that's basically a summary of the entire last episode we did. All the people looking at the misfortune of God's people and laughing at it and being happy about it. Well, that's two episodes ago, right? Because we talked about the, the leadership trouble. Yeah, that's right. So that long section, you're referring to that long section that contains oracles against mm-hmm. some of these countries, Edom, uh, I remember Ammon, yeah. Egypt, Philistia. Um, yeah. There were seven of them. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. A lot of them. Um, so now God here is, he's really, we're getting a summary of that. And then he's going to explain uh, what's going to happen. Verse 7 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. So those nations are going to be in trouble as well. Now, as for Israel, here's what's going to happen to them. Verse 15 And I will not. Let you hear any more the reproach of the nations, and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the people, and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord God. So he's going to bring them back, uh, and starting in verse 16, he's going to tell them why, and he's going to list three things that are going to happen when the people are restored. But to start off with, he's going to explain to them why he is going to do all these great things. And we're going to start reading that in verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, 
Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And let's skip over to verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O house of Israel. So it's not like God has just completely forgotten all the evil, horrible things Israel has done to this point. And he's not really taking vengeance on the nations on their behalf. Right. But on behalf of his name. Right. Because they also have profaned his name. Yeah. And he is going to redeem Israel and he is going to to punish those other nations for the sake of his holy name. Um, because starting in verse two, 22, he says, it's not for your sake, I'm about to act. And then he's going to go on and mention some of the things that he is going to give them. And starting in verse 24, we see that he is going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. Let's read verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So he promises that he's going to give them this new heart and this new spirit. And if you're reading along, hopefully if you're driving down the road listening to this, you're not reading along. But if you're reading along, you might notice that that spirit is a capital S in verse 27. I imagine we'll talk more about that in the second section. Um, and then also, when we talk about application, what this might mean for us today, or does this apply to us today? What exactly is, what exactly is Ezekiel prophesying here? Uh, so he says they're going to have a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to illustrate that at the start of chapter 37. But before we get there, he also says the nation will experience prosperity. Once again, verse 35 they will say, they being all the other nations, the other nations will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. So he's going to give them new prosperity, and also in verse 36, the city is going to be rebuilt. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. So he's going to give them a new spirit, a new heart, new prosperity, and the city will be rebuilt all for the glory of his holy name. And he's going to illustrate that here at the start of chapter 37 with the famous vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones. In verses 1 through 10, you have the actual vision. Then verses 11 through 14, that vision is explained. So in verse 1, the hand of the Lord brings... Ezekiel to the middle of a valley and he says that it was full of bones he says that he is led around among the bones and behold they were very dry and in verse 3 he asks the spirit of the Lord or excuse me the spirit of the Lord asks Ezekiel son of man can these bones live Ezekiel answers O Lord God you know in verse 4 then he said to me prophesy over these bones and say to them O dry bones hear the word of the Lord Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am 
the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So that's what he sees. That's the the depiction of the vision. Now the Spirit's going to explain to him what exactly this meant. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So we have here this promise of a new heart and a new spirit that was mentioned back earlier in verses 26 and 27. There's this very vivid picture given to Ezekiel through a vision that the people say their bones are dried up and their hope is cut off and that they are lost. They are. They are dead. They are dry bones. But I'm going to breathe this new life into them. And that is a summary, a very quick summary, of what takes place in chapter 36 and in the first half of chapter 37. Let me ask you a question. Okay. All right. Uh, Top of chapter 36. Why okay. does he ask Ezekiel to prophesy to the mountains? Uh, the mountains, is it's definitely a metaphor for the people that are of Israel. But he does get well, pretty specific. What does that mean, though? I mean, you know, there's got to be something, some analogy between the mountains and the people. I would, the, the people are very closely tied to the land in which they live. In Old Testament times, the the Jewish nation is very closely tied to the actual like physical plot of land that they live upon. And There's Jerusalem a very strong was connection. known by its... The mountains that surround it. Yeah, yeah. you know, Mount of Olives and mm-hmm. Temple Mount, all that. Yeah. Okay, so you're sure about that? That's... Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is... <laughs> I figured you had the answer to that you know, question. No, he's looking at me like I've got me. more up my sleeve. No, I just... I, I thought that was a little unusual for Ezekiel or anything, you know, to there, there's, there's a lot of imagery in the Psalms with the mountains jumping for Mm -hmm. joy and things like that where they're personified. But here, you know, preaching to the mountain. Yeah. He says in verse, kind of uh, be a symbol of Jerusalem and it's famous mountains and high places where important places of worship, both idolatrous worship and true worship. Yeah. Um, you know, later on, the Samaritans will build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So mm-hmm. this is common with ancient peoples. And, you know, traveling around, my brother lives in Peru. I think it's inter- interesting that the Incas built their holy places on mountains. Yeah. They lived in the mountains, and there was something, some some idea attached to being on a mountain and getting closer to God. You know, yeah. I, I I don't think that's true. You know, I don't think 
you're, you're actually mm-hmm. literally closer to God. But I was just trying to work that imagery out. You know, I saw that and wondered if you had any insight. Well, he does get pretty specific in verse 4 and says, um, you know, say to the mountains and the hills, the ravines, the valleys, the desolate wastes, oh. the deserted cities. So it's a whole, yeah, so he's whole basically, land. Yeah, to the entire land of Israel. He repeats that again in verse 6. Mm-hmm. The mountains and hills, the ravines and the valleys. Um, and he does, you know, later in chapter, uh, later in that same chapter, he says that he's going to replenish the land and the land's going to become like the Garden of Eden. So he is focused on the land having its prosperity back. Um, and them being, you know, back with the land, connected yes. with the land again. That yeah. does speak to the circumstances because, you know, they're mm-hmm. captives, they're not home. They're in a right. foreign land, and he seems to be emphasizing their reunion with the land of promise. Yeah, and and I, that really makes sense to me now. It, you know, just thinking about how they longed for that and thought it impossible to ever be able to return, and he's just bypassing that by going ahead and preaching to the land and assuming they're hearing it. You know, it's just it's like an assumption. He's Mm-hmm. He's making here. It's so sure that he's jumping through the how of it. He's just bypassing that. Yeah, we're not going to talk about how you're going back home. Not here. They do it in other places. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go talk to it as if you're already there. Yeah. Um. So that yeah. makes sense. Okay. Do we need to save the rest for for later? I'm good to save the rest for later. If okay. You are. Well, let's uh, let's take a little break. We'll come back. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about here. It's going to be a lot of fun. So stay with us. back over this, there are a number of questions. All right, so... What number? Uh, let's ballpark it at somewhere between one and a thousand questions. Okay. And I don't nice. know how many of those we'll get to today. Good. Chapter 37 has often been abused for sermons on the resurrection. I mean, it's okay. like preachers cannot help themselves. I think it's obvious to anyone... I don't think this is an intellectual problem. I mean, you can just read this chapter alone and not know the background of Ezekiel or what the rest of the book says and understand that this is a vision that symbolizes something else. Yeah. But I think just, you know, some just cannot resist the the temptation to use this as a text on the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Yeah. It does, the vision is of a resurrection of the dead, although, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to work with, you know, bones just lying around, you know, bones decomposed, not to get too graphic here, but, yeah. uh, you know, the resurrection's going to involve a lot more than bones. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, you have this interesting description of like there's bone, first the bones come together 
And then there are sinews, which I think is the connective tissue. And then, you know, uh, flesh or muscle and then skin over that. And so it's just, you know, makes you wonder, is this what it's going to look at, like at the end of time? Yeah. And I'm going to say, I hope not, because it <laughs> sounds, you know, kind of scary. Because yeah. when they when they stand up, it's an exceedingly great army. There's yeah. a, like a military look to it at the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I just, you know, he's pretty, I think everybody can see this. He's pretty clear that what he's talking about is the restoration of the nation of Israel. Yeah. Well, he just comes right out and he says it. Like you said, it's pretty clear. <laughs> Behold, these bones are the whole house of Israel. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I verse mean, 11. <laughs> so, you what know. What exactly? You know, I guess some prophecies are, they mean more than one thing. You know, they might be a prophecy about a near future event and then also a event mm-hmm. far into the future. But, you, you know, know, so I maybe it's could... okay to, to read this and say, you know, I realize this is not the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. But if you're looking for a picture of that and what it's going to be like, look at um, Ezekiel 37. I guess that's okay, but that's not well, what the New Testament passages on resurrection describe. Yeah, he's you know, definitely making a very... play on... He says the people of Israel say our bones are dried up. So this is, mm-hmm. you know, this... And that was a Hebrew idiom for being without strength, without yeah. hope. Um, who says that? There, there's a fairly well-known passage of Scripture. Is it Psalm? I think Psalm 32. Yeah. How David felt before he confessed his sin. Um, Yeah. Something about it. Yep. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Okay. Yeah. So they, I think this vision starts with that idiomatic expression of my bones wasting away. And there they are. Yeah. Everybody, the whole nation's bones are lying in a heap in this valley. And he brings them back with his breath, Mm -hmm. his spirit. Yes. Okay. So. Let's let's just go into that. No, because I I don't know what else to say about the whole resurrection thing. Well, I mean, Um, I don't know really what good this does for you as a resurrection passage. Like, are we trying to figure out the manner in which we're going to be risen from the dead? Because then if we do this, what if I'm cremated? (laughs) Right, and there's no bone to build off of. Yeah, where's the chapter on cremation? So, I mean... I don't think you have to have this as a... I don't think this adds anything to the discussion on the resurrection from the dead. Even if you say it's about that, okay, what like what good is it? Is it doing our discussion here? Right. It just says the bodies are coming back to life, and which is resurrection. So, yeah. like, why are we... <laughs> I right. guess I don't see a whole lot of benefit. Yeah. Um, so, let's go into... And and some of this is application, so I'm, we're going to try to separate the two, although yeah, that's going to be kind of difficult. There's a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit in these two chapters. You've pointed that out, I think, starting with verse 27 of chapter 36. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Yeah. Uh, that is, I should have read the verse before it because it has to do with the the new heart, the new spirit, removing the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, there's some common idiomatic expressions, 
Heart of Stone, we still use that today. Yep. That's an unfeeling, insensitive person. In this case, insensitive towards God's will and His Word. And in that process, what the what the heart of flesh is going to look like is His Spirit in them and their obedience. And then again, you see this in chapter 37, verse 14. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I will do it, declares the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, of course, the word breath is significant. Uh, you want to talk about that? The, and this is one of those interesting ties between the Hebrew language and the Greek language, right? Well, Same word yeah. in Hebrew. What, what's the word? Ruach or something like that? Yeah, ruah. Ruah. Yeah, it's uh, probably, it probably is that. It's in the oh. lemma no, yeah. of Ruah. Um, ruah. So it's Ruah, it can mean breath, wind, or spirit. Mm-hmm. For obvious reasons, right? Spirit is by definition invisible. Yes. But real. Yes. And I think wind is about the only thing in nature that has the same mm-hmm. quality. You yeah. can't see the wind or touch the wind. You you feel the breeze, maybe, mm-hmm. but it's invisible, yet moves mm-hmm. and has consequences to its actions. Yeah. So that is how it is similar to the yeah. spirit. Very visible consequences. I guess, yeah, I guess yeah. that's the only word I can think of. But the spirit itself, himself, is not is not visible. Yeah. And so the but Greek the, of the New Testament, uh, the word is pneuma, right? Yeah. Which can mean breath, wind, or spirit. I think it's pronounced panuma, right? Panuma. Panuma. I know a guy that had pano- <laughs> panu- pneumonia. 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 <laughs> There's a P at the beginning of that but the, word. That's where the word pneumonia comes from, is the Greek word pneuma with yeah. a P, a yeah. silent P, which can mean breath, which is the connection to the medical problem, mm-hmm. wind, or spirit. And some yeah. of that word plays found in John 3. Um with the conversation Nicodemus. We yeah. don't have time to get into that. Right. But uh, when he says, so that obvious wordplay is there in uh, chapter 37, verses 4 and following, the Lord said to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you or his mm-hmm. spirit to enter you and you shall live. And there's a parallel later on, verse 14, he's going to put the Spirit in, and they shall live. Right. You see that? That's almost exactly the same wording, mm-hmm. just translated Spirit instead of breath. Yeah, you know what? Now I wish I had my, not that I could probably find it, but I wish I had my little Hebrew Bible in here so we could see if that was the exact same word. Um, uh, I'm, I'm guessing there's a s- slight difference, um, but I, I don't know. Uh, Should have looked it up. Yep. I know they're related, maybe the exact same word. Somebody can put a comment on our episode so I can tweet at us and tell us, or we'll go back and edit it after we match pause here. (laughs) Uh, So what's the question here? I I mean, I want to, let's, let's, let me see what you think about this one. I'm going to ask you. Oh no. uh, (laughs) How, how does the spirit make them live in the way of (laughs) chapters 36 (laughs) and 37? Because it's all about life. I would say that a heart of stone is dead, a heart of flesh is alive. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say a valley of dry bones is dead, uh, bones with sinews, flesh, and skin are alive. 
I'm going to say yeah. that a person without the Spirit is dead, with the Spirit, capital S, is alive. Do yeah. we have any information here that tells us how the Spirit makes is going to make these people live? Well, I think there's two big things we have to consider here. Number one, we have to consider like the immediate historical situation of Ezekiel. And then number two, I do think we need to consider the idea of the Spirit that probably everybody's thinking of from like Acts 2, where the Spirit comes in and then every Christian has the indwelling, you know, the Spirit. Not like the, the measure given the apostles in Acts 2, but they do have an indwelling of the Spirit. I think we have to, we got to keep both of those in mind. So in the immediate context of Ezekiel, we're talking about these people who are cut off, whose hope is lost, which is why their bones are dry here for the sake of the illustration. God is saying to them, I know that you feel dried up now. I know that you have no hope now, but for the sake of my holy name, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. We're going to rebuild the ruined cities. We're going to renew the waste places of Judea. Go ahead and tell the mountains, tell the ravines, tell the rocks, tell the valleys that they are going to be restored because I'm going to bring you back and the land is going to be restored. He says, I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord at the end of verse 14. And when he That's says... The immediate context. Yes. He says, I will put my spirit in you. You will live. So the result of them having the spirit is they will live. You could definitely make an argument that this is a physical, like, survival mentality here. You're going to, like, stay alive. You're not going to be dying and killed in these foreign countries. And even though Jerusalem has fallen and many of the Jews have died, there's only a few left now. Even though that's the case, you shall live on. And I'm going to place you in your own land, in verse 14. So there's a few different a few different camps on this. One of the camps is that this is exclusively referring to when Zerubbabel is going to come back at the beginning of Ezra. And this renewal that's talked about here is going to begin with Zerubbabel's return in the beginning of Ezra and going to be complete, completed with Nehemiah rebuilding the city. Uh, and obviously all this stuff's going to reset later on when when you have the intertestamental period and the oppression from Rome and all these things that are going to occur until finally Jerusalem, you know, is wiped out um, in AD 70 by Titus and uh, Vespasian. But there's another camp of thought that thinks this is referring, yes, to the immediate context, but in the grand scheme of things, it's actually pointing towards Acts chapter 2 with the... I guess you could say, well, I don't want to say final, because I'm imagining, I guess that's the culmination of all things. But I guess the the step before that, where the Spirit is poured out in Acts 2, and now all these Christians have the indwelling of the Spirit, and we want to make this about, you know, God's Spirit is going to be in God's people, and fast forward to the New Testament, everybody has the indwelling of the Spirit. So Ezekiel's talking about that. Those are the two camps. And I'll tell you which one I'm more inclined to believe. I am. I feel very comfortable saying this is definitely talking about God is going to breathe life into these people and bring them back to Jerusalem, and they're going to 
live in the city again, and they're going to experience prosperity as an actual nation of Israel again. Mm-hmm. Very comfortable saying that because the context, I mean, spells it out for you very plainly. Yeah. Um, I'm less comfortable with saying that this points to something in Acts 2. I mean, because it's never mentioned, this prophecy is never mentioned in the New Testament right. in any context. Out of all the opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. that Paul or Luke could have mentioned, uh, Luke in writing Acts, Paul throughout all the letters that he wrote, could have said, you know, Luke could have very easily written in the book of Acts, um, you know, those who were baptized in the house of Cornelius received the Spirit, just like Ezekiel yeah. promised everybody. This is what was written in the book yeah. of Ezekiel. It never saying, pops up. Yeah. And I know there were other prophecies in the Old Testament that are never officially quoted in the New Testament. Yeah, but that's part of the reason, not the only reason to to say this applies yeah. to Zerubbabel's rebuilding of the temple yeah. and not the day of Pentecost. I, mean, I would say... It just fits. I mean, it's at the... it it That interpretation takes into account the historical circumstances around yeah. the writing of this prophecy. Now, I think the reason we want to make it apply to New Testament times and to Christians now is because the language matches. Like all this stuff... You can say this about, you know, the indwelling of the Spirit now and still be right. But, you know, I don't know that this is exactly referring to that. Because, you know, you have, I will put my Spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully obey my rules. That matches with what Paul ta- says about the Spirit in Galatians. In where he Romans. says, you know, you've got the Spirit working against the flesh. And if you're mm-hmm. controlled by the Spirit, you don't want to live by the flesh. So being controlled by the Spirit helps you to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Yeah, all that stuff matches up. It matches up very well. So I think you can come here to find maybe some supplement to Romans and to Galatians, but not like the content of it. Well, okay, so my question was more along the lines of the philosophical meaning. We've, We've talked about the historical interpretation yeah you know do we apply it to this historical event or to that historical event or to both because some prophecies do work that way right especially in terms of types and anti-types and i think right. that i don't think it applies to pentecost in the in the historical sense yeah i think i don't think there's little it, because it would have been it. it would have been brought up by you the would, apostles you would think so because they brought up all the others they brought up isaiah they brought up joel yeah they brought up uh, the Psalms, they brought up David, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's, you know, two of those examples are in the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter was quoting a lot of scripture. Yeah. He did not quote this because it doesn't apply to that. Now, in a philosophical sense, though, the question still remains, how does God use his spirit to bring life into his people? Or how does the spirit bring life into people? Uh, the Spirit okay. being God. Um, and so the answer to that question is very clear here. He does it through the Word. Now, I want right. everybody to stay with me on this. I'm not saying the Spirit is just the Word. And I'm not right. even saying that He doesn't dwell in us literally. He dwells in us representatively. Mm-hmm. I believe in just taking the Bible at face value if 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that the Spirit, that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, then my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right. not a representation of the Holy Spirit, 
but the Spirit. He seals yeah. me. He is a guarantee or a down payment uh, on heaven in mm-hmm. me. Uh, he intercedes for me when I pray and don't know what to say. Uh, yeah, well, on other podcasts, we've already talked yeah. about this, and we will continue to talk about this. I don't want to get too far off track, yeah. but I want to I want to point out that a lot of the work is the a lot of the work the Spirit does is done through the instrumentality of the Word of God. Yes. Here are whether spoken or written. I mean, it is so plain here. I don't know why. I don't think I've seen this before. But you have go back to chapter 36, where God promises a new heart and a new spirit, removal of the heart of stone, a heart of flesh, replacing it. Verse 27, you already read it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, grammatically speaking, we would say those three phrases are appositional. Mm-hmm. Um, the first phrase, spirit within you, is equal to the second phrase, walk in my statutes, and the third phrase, obey my rules. Mm-hmm. Spirit in them looks like this. They're obeying the law. Not to mention that in the next chapter, we've already pointed this out, he tells Ezekiel to prophesy, and then this causes breath to enter them, which is a word play on the Spirit, as we see later on, verse 14, mm-hmm. the Spirit within them. So how does this happen? Through prophecy. What is prophecy? Preaching of the Word. The yeah. Word is entering into them. And so that's what the li- the life is. The so, living is they're being changed, transformed by the renewal of their minds as the Word of God is accepted by them, learned by them, I should say first, learned by them, accepted by them, and obeyed by them. It doesn't have to be this mystical thing. Mm. Christians want to make this a, a totally mystical thing. I think there's a lot of mystery there. I don't know how the Spirit is in me. I believe He is in me. I don't feel Him or hear Him, but I'm told that He is in me, and I accept that by faith. Uh, I don't have to take everything in this mystical approach and say, well, you know, the Spirit was nudging me to go talk to this person. You know, that that kind of stuff is thrown out there very flippantly these days, and uh, I think it does more harm than good. Because I I think there are a lot of people out there who are being honest with themselves and saying, well, I've never heard the Spirit talk to me. That must mean I'm a bad person, or God doesn't want me to be saved, or I'm just not spiritual enough to be a Christian. And the Word of God is called by Paul the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17. And here we're reading about how the Spirit changes us. Just like in the New Testament we're told we read about the sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth as second mm-hmm. Thessalonians 2 13 and 14 uh, you know they're they're appositional they're right there together yeah what do you think about that I think it's really clear here yeah I mean the way that he gives the spirit to those bones is through the words of God yeah so God says say this to them Ezekiel says it to them and then the bones have life Yes. So it's making me Later wonder. Later on he says, you know, uh, I'm going to send the Spirit and you'll have life. That's what this vision means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I'm I'm wondering, like, when exactly did, when and how did the people of Israel have the Spirit put into them? 
is why I'm wondering at this point. Well, we're says, seeing it happen right here. Yeah, that's why in I'm the wondering book of Ezekiel. If, when Ezekiel, I wonder if these words in and of themselves, like this message of hope mm-hmm. to the Jews, and again, this is to show my ignorance because I'm thinking of this for the first time right now, but I wonder if this word of hope to Ezekiel is really a part of, you know, this process where in the vision, God says, hey, say this to the people. Ezekiel says it, and now they have life in them. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if... Insofar as they believe and obey. Yeah. You know, there. Yeah. I'm sure there were some who never came to life because they refused to believe that they would ever get out of Babylonian captivity. Uh, but then those who believed it and kept studying, kept worshiping, kept preparing for that day, they went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt. And they were a yeah. part of the new nation. Um ushered in by King Cyrus of Persia and all of that that we've talked about in our podcasts on so, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Here's a Esther. question I think, I think you'll have a good answer for. Did the Jews here now get the indwelling of the Spirit like Christians have? He says, I'll put my Spirit into you. What are we going to... And maybe, maybe we can't draw well, this line with the amount of data that we have here, but... I mean, I, that's a good question. I don't have... I don't know. You got Q and A this Sunday night, right? Yeah. Okay. There's one of my cues. I've had a oh, bunch of okay. those. So the question is: week. is was the indwelling of the Spirit promised to the Jews just as it was is promised to Christians? Well, it can't be because then Peter no, stands up I'm gonna in say Acts no. two and says, yeah. "This is what this is what Joel prophesied about." Well, and there's so also the, the whole thing about the then. temple and where God dwells. The Spirit is God yeah. dwelling in us. And they were going back. What were they going back to Jerusalem to do? To build a physical temple for God to dwell among them. And then I think about Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, where part of the covenant is that I will will dwell with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people Mm -hmm. under the new covenant. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. So there's going to be, in the new covenant, God is not going to dwell in a temple made by hands. Mm-hmm. It's Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, Acts 17. Um, he's going to dwell in his people, in the church. Yeah. And the church is his temple. That's Ephesians 2. That's 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and many, many other places. So, you know, you just, just look at the difference in the temples, I think. You know, as part of the answer to that question. No, that's a good point. All right, we're about out of time, and I, I want to save some time for some practical stuff. So yeah, we got lots of good. Let's take a little break stuff. here, and uh, we'll we'll be back in a minute. Okay, so as we come back to make a few applications, I want to just as quickly as I can give a little bit of comparison to this to repentance now. So we already spent a lot of time talking about how the Spirit was going to help them to turn from their ways and to now walk in the statutes and the rules that God has given them. There are obviously some parallels here to our own repentance now, and we've already talked a lot about, you know, does this directly apply to that or not? Whether or not it does, you can still make an application here, and it's okay. Um no matter what the historical setting or what it might historically refer to. Um, 
when you go to Romans 6 and you read about what it means to really come to Christ and to put him on in baptism, it's interesting that God depicts here Israel as dead with dry bones, that they, they need to be, you know, raised. And in baptism, we are that's exactly what is supposed to happen. We're supposed to die uh, to become something brand new. And the new life that we get comes from the same source, comes from God, uh, that we must first, it makes perfect sense to say that you first have to die before you can have a new kind of life. Um, if you want to be something new, you got to put to death what's already there. Um, so what truly changes a person, this is really the main point I want to make here. What truly changes a person is this new heart, is this new mind. It's not just I'm going to come to Christ, and so now I'm going to have enough willpower to quit doing all these bad things that I've been doing. So you see so many people fail when they come to Christ, maybe in their past is, you know, alcoholism or any other kind of addiction or anger or lying or whatever it might be, and they come to Christ and they expect to just like flick the switch and say, okay, now through the power of God, I'm going to have this amazing willpower. And when I'm tempted to go have a drink or when I'm tempted to go cheat on my spouse or when I'm tempted to punch somebody in the mouth and they make me mad, now I have this magical willpower that other people don't have mm-hmm. that I'm going to be able to withstand in my moment of temptation. Because after all, God's not going to tempt me in any way that I'm not able to, you know, that I have some kind of escape. But I think right. when we think of repentance as like a super willpower, we mm-hmm. think of repentance in the complete wrong way. Yeah. And we've already brought up, you know, a little bit from Galatians about how Paul talks about the spirit and the relation of the spirit working against the flesh. And he says that if you belong to Christ, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live by the spirit, you will keep in step with the spirit. So when we have this this new life, this new heart that Paul talks about in Romans 6 of dying to yourself and dying to sin and he makes the claim that we actually are supposed to die to sin. And so obviously we can no longer live in it if we die to those things. And in verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions because you can't if you've died to it. Romans 12 in the first few verses, he encourages the Romans to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. The word repentance means basically to change your mind, right? To think against is what the word for repent in the New Testament means. So repentance is not just about you trying to beef up your willpower. It's about you changing your attitudes to match the attitudes of God Mm -hmm. and and enter, you know, all the teachings of Jesus about, you know, you've heard it was said this, but I'm going to tell you this. It's not just the things that we do and keeping ourselves from doing things and like, okay, have you are you going to be able to keep yourself from thinking any bad thoughts? Well, if you can, you've repented. If not, you haven't. It's, you know, and sometimes when we pray, you know, we'll pray at the beginning of a service, forgive me for the, forgive us all for the sins we've committed. And then by the end of the service, you know, 25 minutes later, 30 minutes later, somebody's getting them saying prayer, forgive us all for the sins we've committed. You know, so like it's, I don't know. I think we think of repentance almost as how good can I keep up my willpower to not do these things, but it's much deeper than that. It's a change of our hearts. It's a change of our our minds to something different, 
to something that matches the spirit. The Greek word for repentance in the New Testament matches up very well with the pictures that are being painted by Ezekiel in these two chapters. Metanoia, which is a compound word meaning a second mind or a another mind yeah, like or to a think, new mind. Yeah, like to think against, right? Because it's got that against tacked onto the front yes. of think. So it's yeah. like a total... Noia, think, yeah. meta. Mm -hmm. They're using this prefix meta now for all kinds of things, like yeah. a meta-narrative. Yeah. Which I think is like the narrative that goes alongside another yeah. narrative. So, uh, but but the meaning here is it, it we can understand it in terms of mm -hmm. a second mind or a new yeah. mind, but it really means like another mind. Yeah. Or a, a mind beside the other mind, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. But the application of it, you know, when you when you translate it out, it comes out to be, you know, a changed mind. Yeah, definitely. So different from the one before. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what it boils down to. And it's not just feeling bad or feeling mm -hmm. remorse. Because if it had been just a remorseful mind, then Judas would have repented, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. Peter had a remorseful mind plus a changed mind, which gave him the godly grief it took him to repent and be saved. And, we, yeah. you know, you can look at 2 Corinthians 7.10 for more information on that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's this has got some beautiful pictures of repentance here, but it's it's something that transforms you, and the Word plays a very important role in that. Yes. Which leads me to another application, if we can yeah. move on. Um, the power of the Word. I think this is one of the best texts in the Bible on the power of God's Word. Mm -hmm. Now, we're told that the Word is powerful. Like in Romans 1.16, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, you know, uh, Peter talks about the power of the word as a seed to cause one to be born again, 1 Peter 1, 23. So, um, you know, the word is very powerful. That's stated, but give us some examples. Well, you've got the great example of Genesis 1, where God creates the world with the word. Mm -hmm. Let there be light. Instantly there is light. Let there be dry land. Dry land appears. Let there be a sun, moon, and stars. You know, we know mm -hmm. that really well. Yeah. But I don't think we think enough about what it says about the Word of God. All God has to do is say something, and it happens. And Isaiah said in Isaiah 55 that His Word always accomplishes what He, what He, the purpose that He had for it. It mm -hmm. always does its work. It never fails. So we get here in Ezekiel 37, and how do, how do the bones come to life? Through prophecy, through the Word. He mm -hmm. has a preacher do it. I think this is interesting, too. He doesn't just directly speak to the bones, but he speaks to the bones through Ezekiel. Yeah. And that's the way the Word works in the church today. Mm -hmm. He speaks through human beings to human beings. That's yeah. always been God's methodology, except on creation for the obvious reason that people weren't around yeah. during the uh, creation, at least not until day six. And by that point, he was already done. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's a really important application. I use, if I ever preach from Ezekiel 37, that's usually the point that I'm trying to make. Is yeah. like, look at how God brought the nation of Israel back by speaking his prophecy. Yeah. I think you nailed it in the last section when you mentioned that the sword of the Spirit, the thing the Spirit uses is the Word. Mm-hmm. And the Word is coming from the mouths of, in the New Testament, it's coming from mouths of inspired men. And then those words are written down, so the words are still coming through the mouths of those inspired men. And now they're just, there's even another medium through, you know, through the men who are using those words to teach folks. But, you know, just like in in Acts 2, we mentioned that so many times today, but what is it that made all those people want to repent? It was the Word. It was the words of the Spirit that were coming through Peter. So I think you have definitely done a good job of making that point that the Spirit is the Word of God, and the Word of God is the thing that has the power to bring about the change, to bring the new life. Okay, one last thing for for my part. Uh, The name of God, and we already talked about this very important point that God was doing this, restoring his people, not for the sake of the people themselves, mm-hmm. but for the sake of his name, which they had profaned and brought reproach upon. Yeah. This goes back to Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-one. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. And then mm-hmm. verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we oversimplify one of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I think that includes cussing, you know, whatever, for lack of a better term. It includes swearing, you know, saying bad words. But it it has so much more meaning than just that. I mean, yeah. what he's saying is the word vain means empty. Yeah. So if he says, don't take the Lord, the name of the Lord in vain, take there doesn't just mean speak the name yeah. of the Lord in vain. It means don't take it, don't wear it, don't uh, use it in yeah. vain. God gave Israel his name, the name uh, being identified more for identified with more than just a label, but name meaning the identity of God, you know, right. the, who he is. Right. He is he is defining his people alongside of him. He's identifying mm-hmm. them with him so that the nations know him through Israel. Today, bring it to today's time. The world is supposed to know God by his people. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus said that so many times. Yeah. You know, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And uh, John 17, you know, your unity will show the world that, that I've sent you, etc., etc. So when we don't unite, we bring reproach upon the name. Mm-hmm. We take the name of the Lord in vain. That's yeah. you know, When we uh, don't love one another... We're taking the name of the Lord in vain. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not trying, again, I, you know, you parents keep telling your kids not to cuss, and you keep yeah. using the name of the Lord in vain. I mean, don't keep Just telling them not to use the name of the Lord. Just because you can do it in other ways doesn't mean that you should continue to do it in one of the ways that 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that's <laughs> one application. Another application yeah, is hating each them. other. Yeah. If you hate one another, you're taking the name of the Lord in vain. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because he, well, you're welcome. He does say uh, right after he says in verse 23, where he says, "You know, my name's been profaned among the nations." In verse 23, he says, "Which you have profaned among them." Mm-hmm. So the ones that have done the profaning have been the Jews. The yes. Jews yeah, yeah. got all this started. They're to blame largely for the negative view that the rest of the world has on God. It's not God's fault here. The people have misrepresented God. And I know we talked about that in a previous episode. We talked about the importance of wearing the name of Christ mm-hmm. and all these people who under the banner of Christianity are doing all these you know, terrible things, not displaying Christ properly. Well, it ruins it for the rest of us because they're wearing the name of Christ Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that Christians might have such a bad rap in the U.S. right now and across the world, uh, I would say a lot of that is due to folks who have poorly represented Christ. Mm-hmm. So maybe some of the blame is not on folks who are on the outside looking in. Maybe some of the blame falls on us, mm-hmm. on the people who are supposed to represent Christ. We're giving people very reasonable um, reasons, reasonable I read, reasons. I read that. something an atheist said one time when he said the worst enemies Christians have are themselves. Yeah. He they said, that's why I don't believe... Be. He Now, he was just debating, and, yeah. and I don't believe this, but, but he was saying that's the reason I don't believe in God is because of his people. Well, um, you know, that's... I, hey, and imagine how much... Maybe. Imagine how much more legitimate that statement was Back in these times, where like the success mm-hmm. of your nation is tied to the God that you say you serve. Mm-hmm. So if like Ammon's looking at um, Israel and Israel's going under and they serve Yahweh, well, they're probably thinking in their minds, well, that God much must not be all that powerful if he's letting his nation be defeated by right Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So the Babylonian God must be bigger and stronger than the Jewish God. Mm-hmm. So for them, that was definitely an excuse. And, and it explains why God, you know, targets the other nations as well mm-hmm. and makes sure everybody knows what's going on here, that he's been behind this whole thing. Hey, yeah. look, we're running out of time here. So I, I wish we could talk more about that because I, I wanted to throw in profanity. No, I didn't want to throw profanity in, but I wanted to throw in like the meaning of the word profanity. <laughs> Thank you for not throwing any profanity to... into our podcast. Yes. <laughs> got to get that connected. E in iTunes. Right. You know, he says profane so many times. That means yeah. to make common. Mm-hmm. So what they did is by acting like all the other nations, is they made you know the name of God just like the name of Baal. Yeah. You know, it's just common. Yeah. He's just a common God, and this is just a common nation. Yeah. Profanity is making something holy common. That's yeah. what it is. And we could. That's good. Find another way to talk about that some other time. Yeah. But right now we're done. Yeah, we're finished with the book of Ezekiel. We just finished it. Hallelujah. We are glad. We love Ezekiel. It was tough, though. It was tough. It, it was, was tough. I, you know, it's hard, and, and some people... I hope nobody listens to this and walks away saying, well, I didn't get anything out of that, because uh, I know we couldn't cover every chapter, but, right. I mean, that's not our purpose here. When we get done with the 66, then we'll start with Genesis and parse this all out verse by verse. Verse, word by word. Word by word, verse, verse, every word jot upon and word, tittle. verse upon verse, 
chapter upon chapter till yeah. it stands as an exceedingly great army. I was trying to do. Oh like, yeah, to build upon. Oh, yeah. nice. Well, if you'd like to hear more segues like that, mm. uh, join us when we start our next book. First Thessalonians. Right. Be next. First, I was. I didn't know if we wanted to break the news because I'm sure we have people just mm-hmm. waiting. With bated breath, what our next yeah. book's Our president be. would call it One Thessalonians. Yes, One Thessalonians. <laughs> when people go back and listen to this like 50 years from now, yeah, they're going to be, who's president back then? Yeah, right. Uh, that, well, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway. anyway uh, yeah, so we have totally messed this conclusion up. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you want to hear us take another stab at it next week. Yeah. We're all over the internet. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Just type in The 66 Podcast. 66 is a number. Our website is the66.net. 66 is a number, but you're probably getting us from uh, iTunes or some other podcast feeder. But thanks for listening to us. And Drew always logs us out with his famous catchphrase. Next time on the 66. <laughs>